The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I'm just going to continue with uh, the theme that we've been exploring with Mark of right effort. And um, in particular, tonight we'll be looking at abandoning unskillful states of mind. So this is part of the four right exertions of um, preventing and abandoning unskillful states of mind and developing and maintaining skillful states of mind. So this is another one of the Buddha's very systematic and very logical, very simple, straightforward teachings. And as I was reflecting on this talk, uh, I was thinking how simple it can sound, but it's really about what makes right effort is is how what how do we actually do this how do we actually maintain wholesome states and and um discourage and abandon unskillful states and this is just one way we can summarize the whole of our practice is is learning this and all of us to some extent are learning about this and even before we started practicing we had ideas and maybe some of them worked and some didn't in how how to work with the mind in different ways, how to cultivate wholesome states. And so this particular teaching that I'll be exploring for abandoning unskillful states, it really shows how practical the Buddha was in his teachings And it sort of goes from the most subtle technique or strategy to the grossest. And I'll just say them now and then we can explore them in more detail. So even before the five, they're the five strategies for abandoning unskillful states once they're already arisen. Um, But the first one that's not really one of the five is just mindful awareness. So just when mindfulness and wisdom are strong, just being mindfully aware of an unskillful state can cause it to be let go of. It's not us that decides to let go of the unskillful state, but when the mind's in a balanced place, you might have had this experience where um, an unskillful intention arises, but there's just, it's almost like a sense of distance from that, where it, 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 there you can see its appeal, like the hook, but the mind has some distance from it through wisdom or through samadhi, through collectedness of mind, where the mind's just balanced and stable and peaceful enough that it can see that intention, but it just recognizes, oh, I don't have to do that. I don't have to take that up. But, a lot of the time, we don't have that degree of mindfulness and wisdom. So just being aware of it isn't enough. And so that's what the rest of the five are for. So the first is substitution. So we substitute uh, a wholesome state that sort of counteracts as an antidote for the unwholesome state. So an example of that would be if we're feeling ill will towards someone, we could, and maybe we already do this, um, 
think of some positive qualities of that person. Oh, that person is a person like me, doing the best they can. Um, Ajahn Sumedho, uh, a well-known teacher, um, did once, he did a, a whole retreat that he wrote about where he was just thinking about the positive qualities of people and, and reflecting on that. And it was at the time of the Cambodian genocide and with Paul Pot in charge. And, um, and he rang to mind that maybe Paul Pot had a dog that he loved and took care of and had moments of real, of real kindness towards that. And he described how it wasn't to negate the truth of, of, um, of all the terrible things that he did, but it was to counteract the tendency in the mind to focus on the negative. So other substitutions, classic substitutions that are recommended, if the mind's caught in greed about a particular object of greed, we can contemplate its impermanence. Um, that it'll give some some satisfaction, some joy, but that'll be temporary, and that can help alleviate that. So that's substitution. And then if that doesn't work, the next one, <laughs> so they keep going for more and more, kind of more and more invasive techniques with more and more side effects. So the next one is, different ways of talking about it. I liked um, self-respect as sort of a label that, and it's about contemplating what's being set in motion from this state of mind. So if we notice that we have a tendency to get uh, lost in ill will and judgment, we can reflect on what is that setting in motion, not just now, but in the future. Basically, it sets in motion more ill will. And the more we dwell in ill will, the more that will be set in motion. So it's a wholesome disgust in a way. Like, oh, I don't want to be a hateful person. And so just recognizing, oh, this, this isn't what I aspire to can be a way of putting down an unskillful state. And the Buddha had different analogies. So for the substitution, it's pounding out a wooden peg with uh, a rotten wooden peg with a a solid wooden peg. And for the self-respect, it's realizing that you're wearing a garland of rotting flesh. Oh, I don't want to be wearing this. (laughs) And then the next one is diversion or distraction. Um, So just putting the mind somewhere else. And again, we probably all do this. We've we've all been working with these techniques, whether we've heard them in this form or not. And so it can be something like leaving the room if you're in a conversation and you recognize that you don't have the mindfulness and the wisdom in that moment so you can... You might be the best thing to just leave the room, take a walk. Um, 
Yeah, so I'll get back with a case study for, for all of these from, from my experience, but I just want to go through them briefly right now. And then the fourth is investigation or reconstruction. So this is where we think about where did this unskillful state start? How did it get set in motion? Oh, it started because I had this thought, and that thought had this feeling associated with it, which led to this feeling and this thought. And so it's, it's investigation, it's analytical thinking, um, and it's tracing it back to its roots. So that thought came from there, and that thought, that feeling, I don't like that feeling because I have a tendency to not like to feel not in control, but can I be okay with that feeling? Oh, it's just the feeling of not being in control. So it can be helpful when, when we're caught in something to understand, well, what is this? And, and use our mind, what is this? How did it get set in motion? And to trace it back to its more fundamental aspects. But again, this it's down on the list because it can be easy to get caught up just in the analyzing and then just taking that off and, and thinking about that because... But used effectively, it's really about helping us see the constructed nature of what we're caught in, that it is just the result of these causes and conditions coming back to usually some feeling. And then we can, once we get to that feeling, then we can practice opening to that feeling in a more bare way. And then the last is suppression. So this is where we just say we're not going to do this. This is not skillful. And even if I have to grip my teeth, the Buddha says, grit your teeth, press your tongue to the roof of your mouth, as if a stronger person were holding down a weaker person, use the mind to crush the mind. So... It's really interesting that to hear these teachings because they can sound so different from our basic teachings of opening to the way things are. But I really appreciate the Buddha's pragmatism in recognizing that some states of mind are skillful and lead to our happiness and the happiness of others, and some are unskillful. And it's better to do anything about them rather than just let the mind be caught in them. And one note is that I've been reflecting on a little is even before, so this is the abandoning section from the four exertions of preventing and abandoning unskillful, developing and maintaining skillful states. So when we're abandoning abandoning unskillful states, they've already arisen in the mind and to some degree are established. And so that's interesting to just see, well, how did that get established? Because once something's established, it's harder to um, to get unhooked from it. So that's where preventing um, comes into play. And Mark um, recently in a question on the day-long retreat last Saturday where I was talking about 
how I've been doing a lot of metta practice, and it felt at times like I was suppressing worry or suppressing anxiety just by focusing my mind over and over on sending out good wishes, which is the metta practice. But then at other times it felt like I wasn't suppressing. I was just wholeheartedly doing this practice and and what was there was metta and love and not worry or anxiety. Um, and and so my question was sort of, yeah, it's it feels like I'm suppressing sometimes, but sometimes it doesn't. And his point was that the mind is going to fill its empty space with its habits. So even if in one moment I was really wholeheartedly doing the metta practice and that was my reality and it was great and there wasn't a trace of worry or anxiety in that moment, the minute that the mind has a moment of doubt, oh, what am I doing? Then... uh, then the mind is going to fill that empty space. So this is really pointing to the preventing aspect, which there's emphasis on in this tradition too. They talk about guarding the sense doors. So to just to, to recognize that, that the, the mind or that phrase of um, like idle hands are the devil's work or something, I forget the phrase. And um, in doing this, I'll be talking a little bit about this metta practice that I've been doing because I've been learning a lot from it. Um, And one thing it's sort of revealed is how we can be really used to our habitual ways of being and thinking. So in in my case, my habitual mode is Worrying. So when my mind has some free time, some free space, that's what it fills fills it with. Um, and it just can be so taken for granted that it, doing this metta practice has really shown that shown that up. That oh, I I I, I why spend time cultivating worry, seeing what worry sets in motion being worryful, being worrisome uh, in the future when I could spend half an hour cultivating metta and that has effects in the future for how I am. So I'll go through these five again and now with a little bit of a case study of worry (laughs) so starting with just mindful awareness when mindfulness and wisdom are strong like I mentioned there's a feeling of protection and it can feel like a feeling of distance like we have some feeling of distance and protection so I can see the baits in a sense of a thought that's, and I can even feel that hook to some extent, like, yeah, there is this pull. And this is an interesting place where sometimes it even feels like a burn. Um, Charlotte Joko Beck, a well-known Zen teacher, talks about sitting on the icy couch, like where we uh, 
it's uncomfortable, but there's also some joy of renunciation, some joy of not taking something up that we know is unskillful. And when mindfulness and wisdom or other skillful states of mind, like metta, are really strong, then it just, that's sort of what I was talking about, about how doing metta has revealed things about worry because it's just so clear that one feels really good and one doesn't. And it's so simple, but if we don't, if we live, if we're so used to one, it really takes really grounding ourselves, really imbibing another way of being to really to really show us the difference. So that sort of leads into the, the first strategy of substitution. Um, and so metta is, is often prescribed as an antidote for aversion. And worry and fear are a sort of aversion as well. And it just comes down to that you can't be both worried, both lost in worry, lost in aversion, and at the same time, really giving yourself wholeheartedly to a good wish. I feel that way also about generosity um, in other wholesome states, like just the the feeling when I've given a gift in a way that, that I feel good about, or just even before giving the gift, thinking about giving the gift, there's a happiness and it feels like a protection from other things my mind might be doing. And with doing this metta practice, so I found it to be a really, even though it's, I haven't heard it specifically prescribed as an an- antidote for worry, um, it, really, it really has worked in that way for me. Um, to just give myself wholeheartedly to that means I have to not do anything else. And it's actually a little disconcerting at times because the thing about worry is that it really can feel like a skillful thing to do. That's sort of the hook is it's useful to worry, to, to think about things. So it's really been a training to really tune into the feeling associated with it and what that's setting in motion. So that that leads to the next, which is seeing what's being set in motion. So what's being set in motion by dwelling in worry more worry in the future and and seeing not just kind of taking the attention off of the worry and the content of that but tuning in more to its emotional effect um, and energetic effect so it's not just about this thing but it's about this thing I'm worrying about but What is this energy in the body and mind? How does it feel when I'm around other people who are caught in worry? 
How does it feel when I'm caught in worry and I'm around others? So with a lot of these, and I think for me, worry can get really tied up with doubt, which is a really seductive, um, unskillful state because it masquerades as wisdom. But um, yeah, it's like trusting our direct subjective experience of of reality and rather than some objective sense of reality like I have a lot to do. So if we really, if that thought arises and we don't see it as just a thought, we then we, we can really easily get caught in that. If we see it as a thought associated with a feeling of anxiety, what's really been really interesting is to allow that whole dynamic to play out and to not err on either side of completely believing it, but also we can err on the side of of thinking, oh, I shouldn't worry, and suppressing it and pushing it down. Um, and I'll talk about this a little bit more at the end where I'll talk about... Um, just right attitude towards unskillful states of mind. But but it's been interesting to to see what what does worry look like when I'm not taking it personally. I'm just interested in it sort of objectively. Okay, it can play out. It can feel unpleasant. It's going to feel unpleasant. It may have some pertinent information not needing to have a stance one way or the other on it. But more tuning into the feeling. There's a lot that's going on with worry with with the content and should I or shouldn't I? That's where I get caught a lot is in doubt. So what I've been training is to just step back, not need to have a stance, like I was saying, not needing to know one way or the other, but being more interested in what does this feel like and what is this setting in motion, how am I relating to it? And then what's really interesting is it creates a lot more space when I don't pathologize worry, but okay. Like this afternoon... Um, thinking about the talk, I often get pretty anxious. And this was uh, what felt a little new is I was just you know, going through my day and um, and even though that there was still a fair amount of anxiety and still a fair amount of thoughts, should I prepare more, should I not? There was also this sort of awareness of it happening, of sort of the day playing itself out, sort of seeing the impermanence of those thoughts, how they were being known in a in a container of awareness. And it's all, for, for this point, I think feel like it's all about the, any judgment or any, what the attitude in the mind is towards it. 
it's a really interesting point in practice that it's really a really essential point is the attitude in our relationship to our experiences. It seems like so many times I'll think that I'm being mindful and to some degree I am, I'm being aware of what's happening, but then there'll be a, a rare moment of, oh, what if this was actually okay, even though it's unpleasant, even though it's unskillful. And it really shifts. Um, yeah, really shifts how that's perceived. And then when it shifts how it's perceived, then shifts how we relate to it, shifts how it, that thing, like worry itself, plays out when we're not trying to manage it. And so then I was on diversion, and or no, I was on um, self-respect, and sort of just what kind of person do we want to be, recognizing in this case the unskillfulness of worry, seeing that clearly from an energetic point of view rather than a conceptual point of view, trusting our direct experience of wholesome qualities, wholesome states of mind, and mistrusting, not needing to be against, but but really mistrusting or even having compassion or care. You know, this, this feels unpleasant. This doesn't feel good. I care about that. And I recognize that it's not setting in motion in this moment, and it's setting in motion, not setting in motion in this moment, happiness. And the more I dwell in it, the stronger that habit becomes. And then the third, uh, again, is wholesomely distracting ourselves or diversion. And this one's really interesting. Um, in 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 relationship to to worry i've found really pretty recently just been experimenting with this um and i sort of um was inspired by i think we can learn a lot from observing each other and how different of us were get caught in different ways and and have things that might be difficult for me but Worry might not be difficult for some people here, but it might be planning and always being um, looking for the next exciting thing that will be that will be what that person um, works with. So, um, like some people might be more forgetful than I am, and so they might just forget that that they're worried about something or <laughs> this is the the deluded type if you know the three buddhist personality types of aversive type and um greedy type and deluded type so the deluded type can be a little more equanimous because they tend to be a little bit more distracted and just not always fully connecting which in itself can be really painful to not always be connected to your experience, but it it can lend the impression of of not being so caught up in things. Um, 
So I've been practicing intentionally forgetting that I'm worried. And and actually a better way, I think, to say it is um, intentionally allowing worries to leave the mind on their own, which they do, without neurotically having to bring them back, which is what I have a tendency to do. It's like if there's a worry, I really believe that that's a real worry, and so it'll be gone, and there'll be a moment of freedom from that particular worry and some ease, and then the mind will remember, oh, I was just worrying about something. And and it's it's like what I was talking about, like, do we trust our experience of of freedom from that worry, or do we we want control? Really, is what it seems to be. Really thinking that through somehow controlling every aspect of my experience that I could possibly worry about, which is infinite, then I'll be safer. So, other ways that that we can wholesomely distract the mind. It's really anything that we can give ourselves to wholeheartedly. Um, And it helps if it's something pleasant that our mind likes to to be with, like listening to music, um, even cleaning, just anything that we can really give ourselves to. So it's not that we're, so there's not the feeling that we're holding something at bay, we're actually giving ourselves wholeheartedly. Or in conversation, I found this a lot in conversation recently, there's usually something I could be worrying about, but, and conversations really require your full attention. And so there's that moment when I'm in conversation with someone where I see this play of, am I in this conversation, but really in some part of my mind thinking about this other thing or am I just giving myself to that? And also when you give yourself to that and with some sort of unresolved worry, then what's left is the feeling, which is actually more important in any case than the, than the contents of the worry, but just that feeling of, oh, some, some little thing unresolved uh, and that seems really useful to just get in touch with that on its own. And then investigation. So this, again, this is further down the line and um, because it, it can like lead to doubt, for instance, in the case of worry, like, should I be worrying about this or not? That can go on for a long time. But it can be somewhat useful, and we're probably going to do it in any case because we're, we're really good in this society at using our analytical parts of our minds, a lot of us. So, so yeah, I have found it useful at times to investigate um, where this worry is come from, coming from, to, to really, if, I'm, if my mind's going to pursue that path, to really do it mindfully, okay, um, do I have to worry about this or not? And, 
And always I'm sort of leaning towards the I don't. But actually it's been interesting. The more I, I'm more okay with worry as a naturally occurring phenomena, um, the more I see that I also have a tendency to just dismiss worry, but, but often worry might have um, something that practical that could be done. Um, but it's still the same move in practice of wanting to get close to the feeling of it. And then once we're a little more comfortable with that, then it's easier to make a decision about whether some action needs to be done or not. And then the last of suppression. Yeah, I still do that. <laughs> and it, uh, and it, it feels like a useful skill um, to just not go there. Yeah, and it can, it can feel tight and intense, but but I trust it more and more now than, than getting lost in worry. So I'd like to spend a little time now. I think it was just useful after talking about abandoning unskillful states to really look at what our attitude is in relationship to unskillful states because um, the way that we think about it. On the one hand, I really appreciate that the Buddha really recognized and pointed out that some states of mind are skillful and some are unskillful. And it's really up to us to determine which are which by looking at our own direct experience. What is the flavor that's left in the mind when I'm dwelling in this way? Um, and then on the other hand, we really don't want to turn abandoning unskillful states into um, some way of judging ourselves. And just the way we understand, it's all a practical means. So these are when we recognize that there's an unskillful state, the first thing we're assessing is how much mindfulness and wisdom are present. If there's a lot, then it's it's easy to see it for what it is. It's just a thought. It's just a an emotion. And then, if we don't have that degree of mindfulness and wisdom, then we're all we're doing is we're simply recognizing in this moment I I don't have the mindfulness and wisdom to see this as clearly as I might. And so, recognizing what this is setting in motion, I want to take some action. But we'll see that, like in this, from subtle to gross, that having, for example, a, a judgmental attitude probably doesn't work so well. It, can, it just can further um, augment the problem. So we can have the experience of being aware of an unskillful state, but with mindfulness and wisdom. 
And I was exploring this earlier this afternoon. Um, just a worry came up and um, and I was just not neither for or against it and had just this moment of freedom where I realized, oh, it's just a worry playing itself out. Either I'm going to do something about it or not. It's not a huge deal. It does feel uncomfortable, but I can be with that more or less. And I know all things change and this will play itself out. And I'm interested to see how this will play itself out. And it just reminded me um, of how we'll never really fully understand some of our difficult patterns if we're always coming at them even with a really subtle degree of judgment that this shouldn't be happening. or um, So this is, I'll read a little from Saida Utejaniya, who's talking a little bit about this. He says, The mind can only completely drop a defilement when wisdom has fully understood it. If you have to deal with the same defilement again and again, There's not enough wisdom, and you need to keep learning from the situations in which it manifests. And then the questioner asks, what does it mean to fully understand? And Saida says, you cannot stop a defilement, but you can change your point of view, your relationship to the defilement. Once you have done this, the defilement no longer has the power to overwhelm you, but it will continue to come up. So all we can do is work with the defilements and learn from them. Full understanding and therefore complete eradication is only possible when we get enlightened. So that was just sort of what I saw in that moment was, oh, most of the time with worry, I'm not really allowing it to be and to play itself out. And if I'm not, then I'm never going to really learn to see it for what it is. And in that moment, I just had just a moment of seeing, oh, this is all it is. Usually what what grabs us is the feeling tone. Feeling tone in Buddhism is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So with a thing like worry, there's that unpleasant feeling tone. And it just, because of our habit of relating in a certain way to that feeling tone, it just grabs us. And before we even have the moment to decide, there's already a judgmental, a contracted, an aversive stance towards it. So, yeah, so in that moment I just sort of saw, oh, I'm really interested in this experience because because I see that it keeps coming up and I saw in that moment that it was relatively unusual for me to to be able to see it in that objective way. It's unpleasant. Um, It's confusing. But without needing to take a stance on it, um, it wasn't a problem in that moment. Because the only time things seem like a problem is when we're we're taking it personally and we're, we're saying this is good or this is bad. This says something permanent about who I am.
So this is another related passage about how we can... This is sort of the point I'm trying to make is that sometimes and eventually, you know, at some points these strategies from subtle to gross is when we really see that we do need to take action in order to prevent suffering for ourselves and others. Um, take action to address this unskillful state. But eventually we want to be able to to learn to get more comfortable and to observe these unskillful states directly, to learn to see them and feel them fully for what they are, and to know that um, just because we're aware with mindfulness and wisdom doesn't mean it's going to go away right away, doesn't mean it's not going to be uncomfortable. So there's a big part of practice where we're, we're with some unskillful state and what we're exploring is our relationship to it but that it might not necessarily go away or that even wanting it to go away this is where it can be <laughs> interesting just the different terminology and it, from that point of view of wanting to understand um, it's about wanting to understand and not wanting to get rid of in that moment. So he says, uh, someone asks Sayadaw, can there be unskillful states plus wisdom of knowing that these unskillful states are present and relaxation in the midst of that knowing? And Sayadaw says, yes, it is possible. When the defilements are clearly known as objects, when there is this clear understanding that's why I keep telling meditators to be more concerned with how they're watching. If they're watching in the right way, if there's no defilement in the watching, they can watch defilements in an unbiased way. Many med meditators have reported this ability of being in this space where the watching is different, separate from the defilements, and they can also clearly express the feeling that there's no defilement in the watching. And then the meditator asks, so the feeling is one of ease and freedom, even though there are defilements? And Sayada says, yes, they can see clearly that those, that those defilements have nothing to do with me. An understanding of anatta is present. Anatta is the no-self characteristic. So that's the the least intervention is to really take a wisdom first approach, which can be useful to experiment with, even if even in moments, sort of what we did at the end of the meditation is one way to do that, where we're just giving up all personal attempts to meditate and we're just practicing being open and receptive to whatever comes, and practicing relying on wisdom, fearlessness, um, even caring is another way to talk about it. Just trusting 
trusting that the mind can open to whatever is being known and doesn't have to personally manage it. But taking a step back, like, is this moment okay? Is there a problem here? There might be many thoughts with the appearance of a problem. But we practice seeing everything as nature. It's another way of talking about it. And then we have these five techniques when we when that doesn't work of substitution of self-respect I want to be a loving person that's a wholesome aspiration um, distracting the mind investigating the causes tracing back where did this start from and then suppression so what's really empowering about all these different practices is that that they're something that we can learn from and that we are learning from so that it takes away this sense of helplessness. Like there's always something we can do and it's always better to do something than to just let the mind be swept along if it's caught in something unskillful. And we can get really good at this. We want to get really good at this broad range at, at times just opening up. Okay, if what the Buddha says is true and all that's being known here is thoughts are just thoughts. Emotions are just emotions. Can I be with this as the way it is? All the way to I can't be with this the way it is and I'm going to do something else. So it'd be great to hear from others about ways that you're working with effort in your practice, what seems to be working, what seems to be um, confusing, and any questions from the talk. And I think we have a mic uh, that Jean has, and if you'll hold it right up to your mouth, that'd be great. And say your name if you don't mind, too. So what thoughts... I'm John. Um, I was just wondering, um, as you were talking about the five methods, um, you talked about them being increasingly invasive and having, I think you said, more like side effects. I was just wondering if you could speak to that. Sure. Yeah, I think I think the biggest side effect that potential side effect is sort of what I was talking about just at the end, which is kind of a shift in attitude where we start to see these unskillful states as personal problems that we have to do something about. Ideally, we would have enough mindfulness and wisdom all day long to recognize even really difficult states as just being difficult states. Um, but it's really good to have these other techniques. So for the, for example, 
for the self-respect technique, realizing that we're wearing a garland of rotting flesh, that's really easy to see how that could lead to judgment. Like, And it has a flavor of, they call it wholesome disgust. Like, I don't want to be that person. But there's space for that, I feel. Um, and we just don't want to have that lead to self-judgment. Um, and I think then, like, for distraction, the, the downside is if we always use these techniques of, of distraction, for example, we'll, we never really investigate directly what that, what that practice is, what that, sorry, what that experience is. And suppression, obviously, involves really, um, yeah, not not so peaceful of an intervention. I guess I have a a comment. Um, I find it interesting that you talked about worry so much. I mean, I I think probably everybody knows what worry is. It's not my, I, I, I more go into the doubt. I do a lot of doubting, maybe not so much worrying, but the thing about worrying that is so um, sticky is the, the, the feeling or the thought, well, if I just think about it a little longer or worry about it a little more, I'll solve it and I'll get to this peaceful state and then, of course, that's not true. And, you know, my own personal personality pattern is, is and I, I kind of look at things, I do look at things through the lens of the Enneagram, which I think is really helpful. And it talks about everybody's personality. You have something, some program, you keep running and running, you're never going to get over it. <laughs> and mine is more about um, uh, out there is something that I don't have and, something lacking and so I'm really sad because it's you know I always see what's missing I'll just put it that way so I'm so I'm always this feeling of sadness um so I always think you know someday either my doubts will be resolved I'll I'll know the answer (laughs) or you know I'll get what I think is missing but of course it will never happen so um, it just reminds me of of uh, the way we're never going to get what we think we, we're going to get. We're never going to get this reward through the unwholesome mind state. Um, we just have to kind of drop it and realize that's just a, a kind of a, um, a skewed, a skewed uh, pattern. Uh, and it's not about... It's it's not about leading to any lasting happiness in life. I don't know if that was yeah. useful, but <laughs> it, it was for me, at least with the worry, remembering this idea. We're never going to get what we think our worrying is going to... We're never going to get to that resolution we think it's going to give us. Yeah. Thanks. And that's where... Um, where that really resting in, or noticing when we're in wholesome states is really interesting because like we can, I can say, because I think, yeah, you're right, for different people it's different things, but it's kind of a fundamental insecurity 
or aversive types or fear types could be a fundamental just insecurity for um, other types it might be fundamental thinking something's out there or um, but what's interesting is when we have moments of of real concentration moments of even just for a moment of of completely being in metta that's not there that what we think of as such a fundamental part of ourselves isn't there so then it then it really becomes clear what the two paths are we could spend all of our energy trying to to sort through all of our worries which really isn't getting at that fundamental um, ickiness feeling of ickiness or what actually directly we have had moments of directly feeling unburdened by that same feeling of of ickiness or just that same feeling of ickiness doesn't look the same from that other point of view um well i'd be happy to hand the microphone to somebody else but i'll just say um you know a personal experience that is just that i recently had that's just what you've been talking about is coming home from a social event where my pattern is i'm so disappointed because it wasn't maybe emotionally what what i was seeking even even though probably objectively it was a very nice social event but i my feeling is i'm feeling very disappointed and something was missing but then <clears throat> this replacement then i can do something like start house cleaning <laughs> and i feel very happy you you use that example you can clean or do the dishes or something and suddenly you know it's all evaporated what was that about Right. So it sort of points to the unreality of, you know, different mind states. They just come and go. Um, hi, my name is Donovan. Uh, this is my first time here, so I might have missed, like, a lesson or something. I don't know. <laughs> but... um. I was just um, kind of wondering, uh, you, you had talked about how there are, um, I don't know, experiences that are on different aspects of the, the feeling or, or, or of, you know, there's neutral, there's some that are neutral though. Yeah. I was wondering like, how do you handle like a neutral um, thought, like a, feel, uh, a thought with a neutral feeling or like anything like that, you know, like if you don't know really why you're thinking it or where it's coming from. You know. Yeah. And you... a, a lot of our experience is neutral. Um, probably most of our experience is neutral. Um, so with neutral experiences, we tend to just not notice them. Um, so the training with neutral experiences is to really give them our full attention. And, and usually what we do with neutral experiences is do whatever our habits are so for for different people might be just filling that empty space with worry or with planning so that might be where if we notice that uh, the mind is filling empty space then that might be a signal that we're having a neutral experience and so then it's about getting interested in whatever experience we're having um, 
and seeing if we can appreciate neutral experiences or just connect with them. And it can actually sort of a little bit what I was talking about earlier with noticing how we fill up empty space is we can see that as an opportunity like um, I'm filling empty space in this way I might as well fill it with something else like why aren't I spending the whole day reflecting on loving kindness and and how I care about the people I care about and wishing well um, so sometimes it is okay to dismiss those if you don't know, like, if you've had them, like, if they're, like, reoccurring where you, like, you just don't know, you don't understand, like, how you should feel about it or, like, if if it means anything. Yeah. Should, yeah, because I think one thing we learn as we start meditating is that the mind just, its job sort of is to create meaning. So it'll create meaning out of anything. And when there's nothing to create meaning out of, it'll just keep creating meaning. And sometimes our thoughts just don't make any sense and we have no idea where they came from. And so then it's just really easy to see. We can take that moment to really see, oh, the mind isn't personal. It's just this just this sixth sense, which what it does is think. And so it's a great opportunity to be mindful of thought because th- those thoughts aren't very sticky. They don't have a lot of emotional charge to them. So we can right. see, oh, this is what thoughts are. Thoughts are just this constant parade of little blips of energy. Isn't that interesting? And then when we see thoughts that do get our attention and, and seem really charged, then we'll have a little more experience being mindful of thoughts. And we can maybe see those. Yeah, that we can trace back with like that investigation. What happened? oh, there was this little blip of energy of a thought associated with an emotion, and then the feeling tone in that case would be maybe really pleasant or really unpleasant, and then we see what the big next step was, which was of clinging and craving to it, wanting it to continue, really wanting to get away from it. But we can start to see how, start to deconstruct, oh, it was just a thought with that feeling, and then what's usually left over is still that feeling in the case of a, an intense experience. And then we can practice, can I be with this feeling? Do I have the mindfulness and wisdom? And if not, then we have these, these other strategies. But thanks for bringing that up. Well, it's nine. So thanks, everybody, for being here. It's really a pleasure to be with you all. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.